Today I want to talk about the shaping approach to strategy from the book Your Strategy Needs a Strategy by authors from the Boston Consulting Group. So as I've been talking about, you know, there's the Boston Consulting Group has the, the, the idea, and I think it's a good one, that there's a palette of different strategies that are appropriate depending on the situation you're in. And the situation depends on how changeable your situation is, meaning how much you can influence it on, let's call it the x-axis, and the y-axis is how unpredictable your situation is. So if your situation is not predictable and you can't really change things anyway, that's when a classical approach to strategy comes in. And that would be something like Michael Porter's Five Forces or the Experience Curve by Bruce Henderson from Boston Consulting Group. And you can look that up, but the gist of it is that you are going to go ahead and use an approach where you're gonna try and drive down price gain scale, gain market share, and if you're not one of the top three, preferably the top two, you're gonna to need to find a niche within that industry in order to participate. So that's a classical approach to strategy boiled down. So if you your strategy, or if you're in a situation where your world is very unpredictable but you can't really change things, you've gotta use an adaptive approach where you're going to quickly use a lot of small tests within your organization and you have to set up your organization structurally to make sure you can do that to adapt and see what works and quickly bring on new change for your customers in order to survive so and then if your your uh, if your world is is predictable but you think you can change it that's when you use a visionary approach. And when I say that, think um, think disruptor. Um, so, you know, someone or an organization that is radically changing an ordinary organization. Steve Jobs creating the iPhone to, you know, let you take your music where you do your phone calls. Um, what if your scenario is one where it's both unpredictable and you can change things. That's where the adaptive approach comes in. And the best way to illustrate this is to talk about Apple and Google and the world of apps. So the iPhone particularly, because they're the leader in this, you know, initially, as I said, it's probably a visionary approach where Steve Jobs is saying, hey, we want your, your phone calls, your pictures, your music, all to be housed on one device. But at some point in the app world, that changed and the iPhone became a, a, a shaping strategy where they tried to create, and this is another important word that should, should make you think shaping strategy, they create an ecosystem by which app designers could put their apps all in one place so they could be easily downloaded and put on the structure of the iPhone. And then Google did the same thing with Android. So what do you have to do in a shaping strategy? Well, number one, you have to work with the outside parties who are stakeholders in your strategy. So for instance, Apple, um, you know, they hold a lot of uh, conferences, a lot of instructional things. They really help 
their large app designers make it as easy as possible to put those apps on the Apple platform. And then, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, Google does the same thing with Android, but Google kind of lives off of Apple in a sense. And, and they're in a real good position in number two, because if you think about it, they're kind of drafting off Apple because people make their apps for Apple, find out if they're if they're going to be successful or not, and then they make the same thing version for Android because that's where the, the other bulk of the market is. So it's really interesting from Android's perspective, you know, they may not be the leader, Apple is, but they almost draft off the success of Apple. Um, but getting back to Apple, you know, they, they've also got to really listen to their stakeholders and, you know, make sure that they are making the environment as hospitable to them as possible because otherwise those stakeholders could jump to another environment which would completely ruin Apple. So you see that with Apple's kind of battle with Fortnite right now where Fortnite wants a higher percentage of their of their the, the profits that are made from downloads and you see Apple giving a lot of breaks to their smaller app designers as well right now trying to, you know, make them happy and keep them using the platform. So a shaping strategy is one in which you're gonna have to create an ecosystem that makes all of your users of the ecosystem stakeholders and you gotta keep them happy and work with them and make them almost a part of your environment. Another example, and this brings regulation into the, into the, um, into the scope, is you've gotta, create favorable regulation and shape the regulatory environment by working with lawmakers, quote unquote, meaning lobbying. And a good example of that would be, you know, the social media world. So, you know, right now you're seeing a lot of scrutiny on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, the largest social media platforms, politi uh, particularly with political speech. And you see that they are doing a lot of lobbying efforts because they themselves are adapting or using a shaping strategy. Facebook wants to keep the entire long form and kind of update social media uh, platform on its platform. Twitter wants to do the same thing with the shorter, uh, the shorter uh, written word platform and Google with videos. But in order to do that, they've got to keep a lot of stakeholders happy. YouTube needs to make sure they keep getting a ton of new content because while they are the largest, they are competing with you know the, the TikToks of the world and there could be another platform that comes up. They're coming up every day. They've got to not only keep their users happy and continuing to create content for them, but they do also have to deal with a regulatory environment where they are now being charged with, you know, shaping the way political speech and elections are done in the U.S. So they've got to wade through that very carefully because they could be subject to some crippling regulation if they're not careful. Um, so that's kind of a shaping environment. You got to create that ecosystem, but also eventually you've got to shape the way that regulation affects your environment and that's where lobbyists come in. So again, a shaping environment, it's a unpredictable environment that you also have the ability to change and thus shape in your favor.
Hey everyone, continuing a review of articles from the Boston Consulting Group on strategy. Um, wonderful book, heard about it on the Tim Ferriss Show from a gentleman named Richard Cope. Um, so I'm just reading articles from it kind of one at a time and, and trying to find parallels from uh, today's business world. And the, the article I'm reading tonight is uh, Strategy and the New Economics of Information by... Philip B. Evans and Thomas S. Worcester. This is so 1997. So take you back to 1997. This was Amazon had just gone public and was nowhere near the size that it is today. Um, the internet, the, the first internet wave was on. No real gigantic successful internet companies yet. Um, a lot of still pets.com and, and things existing then that would later go bankrupt, especially um, when, uh, when 2001 happened and Ron and, and the recession and all of that. So the, the interesting thing about this article is it, it talks about an early disruption due to tech that I think is really interesting that I totally forgot about. And it's Encyclopedia Britannica. So back when I was a kid, you know, if you were studying in school for a subject and you had to write a report, you, you wouldn't go online, you wouldn't Google it, there's no Wikipedia or anything like that. You had Encyclopedia Britannica. And, or, or, let me rephrase that, you had an encyclopedia. And that was the way you know, kids did research at home. Otherwise, you'd have to go to the school library or the public library and you know, grab books and, and kind of read them and do reports. You had to do that, but a lot of the times you just do your schoolwork. You know, if, if you had to look something up, it would be in, it, through the Encyclopedia Britannica. So, and, and I keep saying Encyclopedia Britannica because that was the most popular, or that was probably the most famous one. We actually had Funk and Wagnalls, which is mentioned in here as well. That was the cheap one you got at the grocery store. Encyclopedia Britannica was the high-end one, and I forgot this, but they said it sold in the region of 1500 to $12. Uh, $2,000 for a set. And there were like, you know, a set of 20, 20 plus books and, you know, alphabetical order. Um, and you'd find different, different topics in them. So I assume the, the range there was, you know, the more complete, obviously, the more you paid. Um, so what they talked about in this article is that your competition in any given industry is not necessarily your direct competitor. Encyclopedia Britannica is one company. Funk and Wagnalls was another. Funk and Wagnalls was sold in a grocery store. That's what my parents got because they were, they were economical. And Encyclopedia Britannica, it had a whole slew of salespeople who go door to door. Encyclopedia Britannica it looked better. It was more complete, better information, better pictures, better in every respect. So this is your classic example of, of, of your strategy in, in terms of business. You may be high-end and you may charge more. Think of uh, Mercedes-Benz in, in cars compared to you know, your, your Ford Focus or your whatever low-end car you want. That would be your, your Funkin' Wagnalls. Funkin' Wagnalls, they sell in grocery stores. There's no sales staff. They're cheaper. They, they probably break faster. Um, not as well-written, not as high-quality, but it'll serve the purpose. And, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica, you're getting because you want to put it on your shelf and have everyone know that you have a high-end book. Funkin' Wagnalls you're getting because maybe you can't afford it or maybe you just want your kids to have an encyclopedia and that's it. So they talk about 
you know, in this article, always know that your competition may not necessarily be your industry. So in this case, they talk about the competition to Encyclopedia Britannica did not end up being Funk and Wagnalls. It ended up being the personal computer. So I'll explain. So, you know, in the, in the early 90s, the personal computer became more and more popular and then more and more homes. So we had one, I, I, I bet we got one as early as 1990. It was an Apple IIc. Um, but obviously, you know, Microsoft in the PC world was selling, they began to sell Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel, all of their different, different products. And they would sell them as bundles and disks that you would get with a new computer you bought, a new PC. So whatever PC sellers there were, you know, back then your, you know, your, and I'm gonna get this wrong, but I assume your IBMs, your Dells, whatever was 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 happening back then, would have bundles that they would get from from the Microsoft would publish, and Microsoft would get a portion of the computer sales, and they'd give a discount bundle of their services, and then hopefully, you know, people would would buy Microsoft Word and Excel because they already had some exposure to Microsoft products. So the one of the products Microsoft did I, I totally forgot this because you wouldn't you wouldn't even think about this nowadays but Microsoft Encarta was a CD-ROM that had an encyclopedia on it so you buy your computer and you are with it getting a CD of Encarta and Encarta would sell by itself if your computer didn't come with the package that included Encarta you could buy it for 50 bucks so 25 or 2200 or whatever it was for Encyclopedia Britannica, 50 bucks for Microsoft Encarta. Think about that. A lot of people are going to go with the CD-ROM because what the article talks about, what people were really buying was success for their kids. And what that used to come in was having an encyclopedia in your house because your kids had a chance to, you know, do well in school. That was kind of a, a, a def, um, a status symbol of, hey, I care about my kids and I want them to do well in school. Well, eventually that status symbol became the computer. And suddenly, do you buy a computer for, they were expensive back then, probably, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, 2000 was the was the low price and then they would go up from there and it obviously came down over time. But if you're spending that much for a computer, you're not going to also spend that much for a set of encyclopedias when you just buy the set for 50 bucks on your computer. What's interesting is they mentioned that Funk and Wagnalls, remember them, they're the cheap version that was sold in grocery stores, among other places. They suddenly partnered with Microsoft to produce the content for Microsoft Encarta. And presumably out of that 50 bucks, they got 10 bucks or whatever they got, and it was sold over and over and over and over. And suddenly, Encyclopedia Britannica is in a world of hurt because they have no way to compete against this. You know, I, I suppose, you know, maybe they could have made it even more high end and, you know, sold for $5,000 and tried to, you know, really, really, really sell less, but sell for, you know, distinguish themselves on, on price and quality even more. I don't know whether that would have worked, but the reality is, is they essentially ended up, you know, going out of business and then eventually, turning into an online brand for a while, but you don't hear about them anymore other than I would know about So it, it's an interesting article from the perspective of it shows, you know, your competition is never 
is not always your direct competition, especially as it as it pertains to tech. And I want to talk about a, a specific industry right now that I was thinking about because I read an article in the, in the Wall Street Journal this morning about Ant, which I had no idea what the heck Ant was. But Ant is a, I assume it's a subsidiary or what the Chinese equivalent is of Alibaba. And it started as Alibaba's escrow service when, when they started. So someone would buy, someone would sell, Ant would provide the escrow so buyers and sellers could trust each other. And it grew from there into a purchasing system for Alibaba. You know, just like with, with uh, you know, Amazon, you have your card on file, you buy things through Amazon, transactions are cleared. So similar thing for Ant. And then Ant eventually had people hold money within Ant so they could, you know, receive money by selling something and buy within Alibaba for something else. And then eventually Ant turned into something where it would actually lend money to people on credit. In China, there's not as credit cards to the same extent that there is in the U.S. So look at what, what Ant is doing over time. It's providing escrow services first. It's providing, you know, holding of funds. It even developed, it, it's one of the world's largest money market accounts, which is interesting. So it can pay interest to, to people who have money on file and it's lending. When you take in money and you pay out interest on that money and you're lending that money, what does that sound a whole hell of a lot like? It's a bank. And what's interesting is the article talks about how, you know, Ant over the last few years has really repositioned itself as a, a tech company because it's drawn so much scrutiny from the old banking system in China, which the Chinese banking system would be nowhere near as robust as the U.S., but still the, the old you know, Chinese banks would have a big incentive to go, wait a minute. We don't want this ant company that's attached to Alibaba coming in there and running all the financial transactions. That should go through us. But it's interesting that, you know, the banks, their competition was not another bank doing banking better. It was an escrow service for Alibaba that eventually turned into a bank and is really taking over the banking industry in China. So let's take that to U.S. equivalents. What sounds a lot like that? And this is what I was thinking of as soon as I read the escrow service. Well, eBay early on had escrow services. eBay early on purchased PayPal, right, as a payment system. And if you think about it, when eBay first started, it was a pain to, you know, do transactions with on, within eBay. And that's why they eventually bought, you know, a company like PayPal so they could make transactions a lot easier, you know. PayPal is essentially like a banking system. You keep money in there and, you know, you keep it on PayPal and then you may, you know, send PayPal via email to people nowadays. You may pay for things via PayPal and even look at Venmo. Venmo is a bank in and of itself, right? You, you, you take in money in Venmo, you send money, you attach it to your bank account to send money in and out. Do you know how Venmo makes money? It's really interesting. Like, Hopefully, when you take money in Venmo, when you send it to your bank, you choose the option that says one to three days for free. Well, if you look to the left, there's an option to get it instant for, I think it's 10% of the transaction or something like that, up to $10, or maybe it's 7% up to $10, but it's an insane amount. And what's interesting, I was I was talking to the some some people who work for a company in a... In a, it's not Venmo, but, but a similar type of thing where it takes money in and allows people to rapidly send it to their bank account if they want. And they said about 70% of their transactions 
are the rapid option where they're essentially getting 10% of the funds that are, that, that are going up to a $10 limit or whatever it is. I doubt it's 70% with Venmo and I doubt they even have that published what, what it is, but, but I, I bet it's a lot. I bet it's close to, I bet it's over 25%. And if you imagine the sheer volume of money going through Venmo, think of all those transactions and now think back to, you know, what are the complaints about banks, especially with Dodd-Franks, you know, the, the fees with debit transactions, overdraft fees, all of that. Well, that's nothing compared to, you know, Venmo and other similar fintech companies that, that, that are in that, that line of business. The, the difference is, you know, with Venmo, it's totally by choice, right? So, you know, you got your PayPal's, your Venmo's, you got Ant in, in China, there's also things like fintech companies that are running as, as fronts for banks. For instance, you know, I use a, a, a online banking tool called Simple, and I call it an online banking tool. It's not a bank because my actual money is at BBVA Compass, but Simple is an easy way to send money there that I keep it. I keep for savings. They give above rate interest. I assume that they're getting money on the exchange fees every time I use a debit card, which I don't use their debit card very much. I just store money there. But I assume other people use a debit card. I assume that, you know, BBVA Compass in exchange for simple directing money there gives them a cut, you know, of, of the money they have on there as interest. It's real interesting, like how many of these direct competition uh, things uh, direct competitors to banks that are out there now. Simple, Venmo, they obviously partner with banks because you can take money in from your bank and you can send money back to your bank. And we're still at this point in banking transactions. But 10 years from now, man, I really see that the Wells Fargo's of the world and the chases of the world losing to these fintech companies. Why? You know, a big part of it is Encyclopedia Britannica, one of the reasons they had to keep their prices so high was their distribution network was a large force of well-paid salespeople all over the country, door-to-door, you know, selling directly to colleges, elementary schools, things like that. It's infrastructure that now tech companies often don't have. If you think about Microsoft Encarta, the article said it cost a buck 50 to make that disc with Encarta on it. I don't know if that includes the license to to Funkin' Wagnalls, I assume that was more, but it was extremely cheap to distribute encyclopedias. And one of the things the article talks about is the contrast between richness and reach. So they added on kind of a XY type chart. You know, you'll, as, as you go up in richness, meaning quality, a lot of the times it's much harder to distribute it. So in Encyclopedia Britannica's case, it was very rich. I mean, it had a, a great deal of depth. It was really nicely printed, but it required a very expensive sales staff to get it out there. There wasn't much distribution. And Card, on the other hand, focused on reach. And it wasn't, it wasn't as quality at all. I mean, the, the, it was Funkin' Wagnalls, which wasn't as good of a content. The, it, it said it added some pictures and things like that, but nowhere near as good as the Encyclopedia Britannica but the reach was, was so good. So, you know, as you think about your business and what your distribution efforts are going to be, one thing you got to take into account is, you know, if you're an extremely rich product, meaning high end, very good, it's going to cost a lot of money to get it out there. And you need to make sure that your competition isn't going to be able to beat you on reach. 
And you may have a strong enough brand name where that won't be the case. For instance, uh, you know, luxury clothing brands, you know, Louis Vuitton purses, they're not going to get beat out just because someone can make cheaper purchase purses and use tech to get a great distribution network because of the brand. But Encyclopedia Britannica was a really strong brand back in the day too. So getting back to banks, well, banks, you know, you got some strong brands. You got your Chases, your Wells Fargo's, your Bank of America's. You know, what is what is their reach? They got to have all of these expensive distribution networks called branches, and they're starting to shut down a lot of them. I think that's smart and trying to go to more of an online presence because they're trying to increase their reach because you know, the richness of, of the banking experience at physical locations, it, it doesn't exist as much today, especially not even people my age. I don't want to go into a bank, you know, other than I, I do get cashier checks and send wires out of a bank. But that's about it. And you could do that stuff online. So banking is really interesting. And a lot of these fintech companies, I think, especially as they're able to do ventures with online retailing, online shopping, you know, you're going to be able to see some interesting disruptive fintech products that I think are going to take over the banking world. It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, Venmo or even Uber is an example. Uber has a ton of money because, right, you pay Uber and they keep the money before they pay out the, the driver and they, and they keep their profit on top of that. Uber is a banking system. Will Uber start doing mortgages? Will Venmo start doing mortgages? Will Uber start, you know, offering interest on money you keep with them in order to pay for your rides down the road? You know, well, who knows? Find out. You know, you you think about this critically, and I think banks have really got to figure out how to increase their reach. You know, even at the expense of, of their richness and, and ratchet down their their physical locations even more and ratchet down their their high, you know, high price distribution staff. I used to be in banking, you know, earned a great salary doing it. So I don't know if they're going to be able to compete with, you know, with 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 getting capital cheaply when Venmo, everyone's using it to pay people, you know, Uber, everyone's using it as a taxi and they can double as banks. So I think you're going to see a lot of these, just like you got Alibaba and you got Ant right next to it. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more of these fintech bank type companies that are going to be real disruptive to traditional banks over time. It'll be interesting to see where what everything looks like 10 years from now. Thanks and have a great night.